Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Joachim Rucker, who is the president of the United Nations Human Rights Council. He was the special representative of the United Nations Secretary General for Kosovo during the transition of Kosovo to an independent country. He was the mayor of a German industrial city, and he is currently a key partner in the Sustainable Development Zone Alliance. Welcome to the show, Joachim. It's good to be here, and thank you for inviting yeah, so I think you've had a very interesting career working as a mayor, working on kind of helping Kosovo achieve independence and working at UNHCR and now working on special development zones. So can you just put, give us a run through on these various stages in your career and how they pulled together with your work on special development zones today? Well, it's true. I have this background in a city. I have been an elected mayor in a German industrial city called Sindelfingen, south of Stuttgart. The claim to fame of Sindelfingen is probably that it has the largest Mercedes factory worldwide. So it's actually the cradle of all the S-classes and B-classes and other things you you hopefully drive, unless you drive a Tesla. But I am proudly a no-car owner. Actually, I drive a Tesla, but I when I purchased it in 2014, my Model S, Daimler owned actually 10% of Tesla. So I thought it was not any... Any, any high treason in that respect. Coming back to more serious business, yeah, that was, that was my time as a mayor. So, of course, I am rooted, let's say, in local politics, and my motto is also uh, all politics and business is local. I think that's a very important motto, and it sort of pre-influenced uh, what I did later when I went into international politics and joined the UN. You mentioned some of the functions I had, one was that I was uh, the deputy special representative of the Secretary General in Kosovo, responsible for economic reconstruction of an economy that was in pretty bad shape when I took over. And later I became the special representative of the Secretary General in Kosovo and head of the UN interim administration in what was at the time a territory. Now, of course, it's an independent country. And that was also a very interesting period of my life. Then I have never joined UNHCR, so that's a mistake, but I was with the UN as the German UN ambassador in Geneva and as the president of the UN Human Rights Council, inter alia. I've done other things, but that basically forms, as you can probably deduce, a background sort of with urban development and with sort of the UN and humanitarian side of development. I've been also stationed, of course, with the German Foreign Service in some countries in Africa and other countries. So that's another part of my career. But it came all together when we decided in 2017, 2018, to actually make a difference with regard to uh, migration policies and with regard to the humanitarian and development policies that we saw sort of with some flaws. 
Great. And so let's talk a little bit about that. You propose special development zones, which in my mind are similar to charter cities, but not exactly the same. So what is that proposal? What progress have you made on it? What progress still needs to be made? How should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, we, that is the Sustainable Development Zones Alliance, come from different backgrounds, NGOs, consultants, etc. But we have one goal that is making the repercussions of forced migration and rapid urbanization more bearable. So we come from that angle, from the rapid urbanization and forced migration angle. As we all know that urbanization is one of the pressing problems of our time. Now over 50%, of course, as you know, of the world's population live in cities and big cities. Very soon it will be like 75%, 90% of that is happening in Africa and Asia. And I think it puts the cities into a very difficult position to deal with these challenges because usually this is where, as you know, the hundreds of millions of people who have left their homes will land, quote unquote, in the outskirts of bigger cities. And what we see and have, of course, also researched and seen in practice in our vast practical experience in our professional lives is that those people will mostly land in the informal sector, in the informal sector of not only of the economy, but also of the society. So we have been thinking, what is a means of bringing people out of the informal sector when it comes to ID, when it comes to housing, land use in general, when it comes to jobs, to micro and smaller businesses, when it comes to employment in general, all these things are not really possible to master in the informal sector. So we need to bring people out of the informal sector into the formal sector. And SDZs, the concept that we have developed, is one means of doing that. What is an SDZ? An SDZ, we call it, we call it a sustainable development zone. So it uses some of the elements of a special administrative and legal framework to solve problems. So we consider ourselves as vanguard of the what people call the SEZ plus movement, where you use the basic concept of a special economic zone, that you have a special legal and administrative framework that is apart from the rest of the country, and you use it to achieve certain purposes. That was usually in the case and still is, and with all the good reasons, in the case of the SEZs, of course, attracting foreign investment and creating employment, etc. With regard to the challenges we have been focusing on, it is a means of solving integration because, and of course, also achieving economic growth, employment, etc. But that's the basic focus of achieving integration in brownfield and greenfield developments, usually in the outskirts of bigger cities where you have all these problems with people remaining stuck in the informal sector. We have thought that if you enter into this new paradigm that you need a certain special legal and administrative framework to solve certain problems, then you need to remember three things, game-changing meta-topics that would help you to come to the right conclusions. The first is that people in a vulnerable position in the informal sector need to be treated as not as objects of care, but as subjects of their own development, as consumers, as potential producers. So they need to be 
taken seriously and have to come out of the objects of care trap. The second thing is that these people need to be effectively, effectively connected with their urban surroundings for mutual benefit, because the core population that has been there before will benefit from the newcomers and from the influx of new people, also economically and vice versa. So they have to be connected with their urban environment. And the third thing is that to achieve one and two, you need, and this is the conclusion we have come to, and then we have formed it to a concept, is that you need a special legal and administrative framework because the alternative would be to do everything through the existing cities. Now, having been a mayor for almost a decade, I know, I think fairly well what an existing city can do. Also in some of the developing countries, what are the limits? What are the possibilities? But also what are the limits? So I think it would help a lot if you could introduce the idea of the special legal and administrative framework to the challenges we are facing in especially global south, big cities. And this is what the idea of the SDGs are all about, bringing people out of the informal sector into the formal sector through this special framework, connecting them to their urban surroundings. And since we have grown out of the former refugee cities movement, of course, this goes vice versa. If you look at an isolated camp, ideally run by an international humanitarian organization, like, for example, UNHCR, then, of course, the same goes. People should be perceived as not objects of care, but as subjects of their own destiny. They should be connected with their urban surroundings somehow, or the surroundings should be connected with maybe a remote camp. And there needs to be a special legal and administrative framework. That's the basic idea. Now, some people ask, why do you propagate local integration also for new migrants that come into the big cities? Why don't you ever think about, this is the questions we're being asked when we have discussions, debates, public debates. Why don't you ever think about return? And why don't you think about return in the sense of repatriation or the acceptance of refugees in, let's say, for example, or migrants in the countries of the global north? Well, the thing is, those two options are fine in principle, and in some cases, they can apply. However, in the huge majority of cases, they're not an option. People will not return to places where they have been forcibly suppressed through a violation of human rights, be it political rights, or be it social and economic rights. They will not go back if they have only, quote, unquote, come for better livelihoods. They are actually, they came to stay in the cities. That at least is the empirical experience. So you need to offer local integration options. And, and this is what the Sustainable Development Zones idea and concept is all about. So a special development zone, in effect, creates this new legal administrative framework that allows for rural to urban migrants and potentially people who are living in cities to then embrace the formal economy, benefit from the global economy, and begin to put themselves on a higher path of production. So what does this actually look like in practice in terms of setting up this special administrative region, in terms of getting buy-in from the government 
Um, how much land are you looking at? What kind of population are you looking at? How do you think about the industry sectors that would be in that area? Yes, we call it sustainable development zone, not special development zone. Oh, sorry, that sustainable development the beginning, zone. But we call it sustainable development zone to make very clear that this is a local application of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, especially Goal 8 and 11 about cities and about economic growth and prosperity. What we have defined in our concept and what we're now looking at with regard to pilots, the first pilots, is brownfield and greenfield development combined. So we would usually look at, let's say, a 500 hectare plus minus zone that, of course, has some established uh, brownfield development already, maybe including uh, smaller or even bigger businesses and a formal sector, but also would include the vulnerable groups that we're talking about, which can be refugees, which can be IDPs, which can be other vulnerable groups, basically people living in the informal sector and not being able to exit that informal sector in any way, so being being stuck. So that's the, the group we try to integrate into the formal sector. And as I said, we're actually looking at 500 hectares plus minus, but that's one figure we're looking at right now when we talk to the government of Ethiopia about a pilot or more than one. And as I said, this would be brownfield, but there would also be an option that there is greenfield development, so adjacent land should be available. Great. And who is then the governing figure in, in the SDZ? Would this be appointed by the government of the host country, by the UN, by some combination? Right? How, how would you actually set up this special administrative government, I guess? Yeah, we have a defined design of the government, which would be an SDZ development company that would also sort of raise the capital for developing, because one of the most important thing is that you have a concession or some other form of agreement with the government or the government layers that you can use the land differently than with regard to the rest of the country. Because, of course, the added value comes from the development of the area. It comes from the land. And we would set up this STZ development company and government layers, but also formal sector residents and, of course, capital givers would be shareholders in that SDZ development company. Then you would have an SDZ administration with a strict oversight and also appeal mechanisms with regard to decisions of that SDZ administration. Oversight would come from a board that would again comprise government layers from the respective country. It would comprise the UN country team, some representation, and it would comprise other stakeholders, especially also from civil society, from local civil society and possibly from civil society in the respective country. We come very much from a civil society angle in the whole history of our concept. And when you look at the people who are involved, so we, of course, are very keen not to be seen in the in what went wrong with the Charter Cities idea, that it is something that is a revelation from the north to the global south, and that is a sort of a standard operation. Not at all. I think what we are trying to do is that there needs to be 100% local ownership, including the stakeholders from the vulnerable groups, 
And that is represented in the way that the governance of the SDZ would work. And what do you see as the key, maybe, concessions or governance authority that the SDZ should have that should make it successful? Are these things like labor law, dispute resolution, business registration? What do you see as these key layers that you want to embed within the SDZ to make it have a competitive environment? Well, it would certainly be sort of the rules for land use, uh, as I've said. But you find that in many countries, you already have, of course, special economic zone laws, which allow a different land use, uh, which you can actually build upon. And then, of course, you should basically, when, when it comes to things like dispute settlement and maybe even uh, security issues, it's basically a menu, whether you do that with existing institutions in the country or whether you think you have to set up something that would resemble it for the SDZ itself. Great. And when you're thinking about these 500 hectare areas, are you thinking about scaling them up? Would you want to make large, after you get a pilot project going, would you want to do 1,000 hectares, 5,000 hectares? Or do you see the 500 hectare model as the ideal model? No, as all projects, I think an SDZ can scale up, and that would be always part of the, of the design. Ideally, as I said, it's usually a brownfield development because we're focusing on people, but there should be adjacent land available, and you should actually look at scaling it up, yes. Fast forward 15, 20 years in the future, let's say you're entirely successful, execute on it really well. What does that future look like? How do then SDZs impact the world, the, the conversations that are happening, how, how is the future different with, with that success? Well, I think what's very important to understand conceptually is I think that this is an innovation in local administration, in decentralized local administration. And in this way, it resembles, it resembles similar decentralized innovations, like in the fields of telecommunication or in the field of renewable energies or smart cities. And in some ways, it's even compatible or very much compatible because it's a decentralized innovation with regard to administration. And it goes together very well with other decentralized innovations. So it can be a model for innovation in local governance. Great. And how have your conversations been with getting governments to buy into this concept? One of the challenges we've had with charter cities and to return to a previous thread, we see ourselves as, I guess, a little bit different from Paul Romer's model of charter cities, where we do advocate a public-private partnership between a developer and the host country to align the development with national plans, not having a high-income country come into a low-income country, but structuring it as a, a public-private partnership instead. So when we work with new city developments on the ground, we tend to work with new city developments that are being led by people from those respective countries who have that domain-specific knowledge that us working in the U.S. don't always have. One of the criticisms we, we frequently get is, why would countries decentralize authority on this margin? Uh, governments like their authority, so they often are reluctant to give it up. And so how do you see that working within the SDZ model, and how have your conversations so far proceeded with getting governments to buy into that degree of decentralization? Well, as I think I've said, or we have alluded to, we don't have a pilot project yet, but we are about to create them and, and we are advancing. However, of course, you have to be in close touch, not only with central governments in the respective countries, but also with regard to local government and with regard to 
the grassroots movements and people. Otherwise, I think you will not be able to achieve anything. So local stakeholders are extremely important in getting this implemented. However, I think many countries already have SEZ, Special Economic Zone legislation. So what we usually do is that we say there is a similarity to a Special Economic Zone in the sense that, yes, we do need somewhat different framework in legal terms for this legal and administrative area that is set aside from the, from the rest of the country. And we need to do X, Y, Z in order to uh, create uh, the SDZ. Usually we have had quite good reactions in the countries that we have had talks. People understanding the idea and actually accepting the logic as long as you do it with the local stakeholders. I think a huge mistake would be that you talk to a central government before you even sort of tentatively have talked to the prospective or any prospective local stakeholders. In some countries, which are fragile in their political setup, we have actually worked uh, with mayors, uh, like in Libya, where we have had very good plans and projects developed together with mayors who said, even if we have a fragile central government, all the more we would like to work with you and have something like an SDZ on the local level. So in addition to the local and the national stakeholders, what other stakeholders do you see as key to the success of SDZs? I assume you also need investors, maybe experts to help administer the SDZ, but how have those reactions been and who do you think are on a granular level those key stakeholders to engage with? You, of course, need people to finance the idea. And by people, I mean donors, I mean lenders, and I mean investors, because we foresee a mixed financing with different layers for investors. You might have CSR investment, but you also might have a reasonable return on your capital for certain investors. So if you have a, a mixed layer of financing, then I think we would have the right group investor-wise. And of course, we're targeting investors as, as we speak. Currently, we're looking at at least one project in Ethiopia, where we would like to have financing. Yeah, this is the stakeholders that are actually necessary. The local stakeholders from the affected population, from civil society, from government, the central layer, central government, central civil society. And of course, you need potential investors. Of course, you already have some economic investment already when you're able to, at least on the micro and small enterprises level, if you're able to formalize certain informal activities. This would, of course, be a very advantageous if you get international investors as well, yet like you would get in a special economic zone. So we're targeting these as well. Great. And how do you think about training the administrators of these SDZs? So, for example, we're at the Charter Cities Institute, we're engaged in several new city developments. They don't have the degree of legal autonomy that we would necessarily like, but one of these and questions we're running into is who administers the zone on a practical level. And so, for example, in Nigeria, one of the projects we are working with is in Yimba Economic City. They have 10,000 hectares. Their target population is 1.5 million residents. So it's a city about the size physically of San Francisco with art with when complete, at least with their target population, twice the number of residents. And so one of the questions is, 
who is the, I guess, kind of administrative class in this city? You probably don't necessarily want to hire from the Nigerian government because the Nigerian government tends to not be very effective. And so the entire point of creating this separate jurisdiction is to escape some of the bureaucratic challenges that are in Nigeria as a whole. Our kind of guess is you can probably hire 20% or so of Nigerian expats, of Nigerians living in the U.S. or in the U.K. who want to go back to their communities, who want to give back, who have that relatively high level of education. But then that still leaves a lot of positions where it's not exactly clear how you fill them. And so at the Charter Cities Institute, what we've been doing and thinking about is partnering with universities, for example, the African School of Economics, to set up masters in city administrations to start training people who would be able to right, take over some of these roles and prove effective administering these new city developments. And so I'm just wondering, okay, you have a pilot project in Ethiopia. When you think about who actually forms the administrative roles for the SDZ, what population pool are you thinking of hiring from? And then two, as you're able to scale up, is that population pool able to scale up with you in terms of talent to really reach the, the impact that you want to reach? I mean, I agree that you can probably hire competent people because I think what you find in many countries, and we found it in Libya in particular, is that you have uh, almost an overshoot of well-educated people, including administration. You certainly don't have enough possibility to apply the acquired knowledge. So I'm not really that concerned. And you have to go to the market for potential, but there is a market. And there is, I think in many countries, you have actually more educated people than you have jobs. So I think it should not be a big problem. And of course, we have people who have done mayoring themselves, who have been mayors, who have been administrators in our team. So whatever is needed, I think we can also communicate uh, sur place. Great. And how do you see, you said, for example, that you see UN officials serving on the administrative board of the SDZs and you have experience working in the UN. So have you seen the engagement from the UN and other of these multilaterals in their support, in their level of interest and in, in SDZs and how you're able to, to kind of apply that support and interest? Well, the thing that we want the UN country team represented by the country representative or somebody else, or maybe a human rights officer in the country team in the supervisory board for the SDZ I think that's a matter of course. I think you should not be active in a developing country and leave the UN aside. I think that wouldn't work well. So we want them in a supervisory role in the supervisory board as well, like civil society. With regard to the UN's engagement in the humanitarian and in the development fields, I mean, where we come from, all of us basically in the SDZ Alliance, is that we have seen what you call the humanitarian development divide. So we have seen problems in the way that the humanitarian agencies carry out their work in the way that the development agencies carry out their work, especially with regard to the lack of a real connect between the two, because like you have humanitarian activities, UNHCR being of course, a key actor, and you have development activities, UNDP being a key actor. And in our view, they still do not connect enough. Now, I, that has been the subject of a number of conferences, and some things have been undertaken indeed to actually improve the connect between the humanitarian and the development sector. But I think there is still a gap. So 
This is the kind of gaps we are trying to fill with our SDZ, Sustainable Development Zone Alliance, concept, because I think there is not enough of a continuum between humanitarian activities uh, for people in need and their possibility to actually emancipate from that and become economic subjects, consumers, producers, and liaise with their natural urban environment. And that's the problem. And this problem is what we try to address. So you mentioned Paul Romer's interest in charter cities previously. We also have, for example, the Jordan Compact, which was targeting migrant communities, as well as a long history of special economic zones. So what lessons do you draw from these projects in terms of like inspiration that you see as successes and what avenues do you see as things that you might want to avoid that didn't work out as successfully as might have been hoped in some of these previous related projects to SDZs? Well, whatever I said about charters, uh, Paul Romer's charter cities before, I would like to make the point that I was talking about perceptions. Uh, perceptions of charter cities concept were somehow in the sense that, you know, this was dubbed neo-colonialistic, etc. I'm not saying anything about Paul Romer or his intentions or the concept uh, itself, but the problem was I think that it was perceived as being neocolonial, and that, of course, made it difficult. But, of course, we can all learn from this, and I think there is some, some elements we have to remember from, from the time that the concept was introduced and discussed uh, publicly. One consequence we drew from that is that we are all about local ownership, and we don't do a step in our direction without involving local stakeholders, because I think there needs to be total local ownership. Otherwise, you cannot introduce any such concepts. It's not enough to deal with the central government. You have to go to potential sites and you have to talk to the people and not only, but certainly also sort of the government, the local government, but also to the people you want to reach with the concept, including especially the vulnerable groups. Having said that, you were mentioning the Jordan Compact. I was personally involved in implementing the Jordan Compact uh, after the London Conference for uh, Supporting Syrians and the Region, when I was the special representative of the German government for the Middle East Stability Partnership, as we called it, which was about implementing the London Summit and which was about implementing the Jordan Compact. And I think we can learn a lot from the Jordan Compact. First is, I think, a good lesson is that you can combine the idea of special economic zones with creating work for uh, vulnerable groups, in this case, refugees from, from Syria, in a way that really allows to make progress. I don't know where we are now, but I think at least 100,000, probably much more uh, refugees are actually employed now in Jordan special economic zones under the special legal framework of the zone. Now, there's also things you can learn from the Jordan Compact, which you might not want to imitate, like there is problems with the remote location of some of the places where the refugees live and where, in turn, the special economic zones are. So there's some busing involved, etc., and some transportation costs. So this is what made us think that you actually need to go where the vulnerable groups are you need to have a brownfield development instead of busing people to a special economic zone, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lessons we can learn 
from the Jordan Economic Compact, from the Jordan Compact, I'm sorry. But of course, there's also things that are quite uh, paradigmatic with the Jordan Compact. And I think it's good that the international community was able to enter into that new stage, which also, you know, included new thinking, because almost for the first time, people said, well, it's not enough if people live for a projected time in a certain country, if sort of people that come from a forced migration background live for a certain time in a country, but they also have to work. They have to belong to the formal sector. And all these recognitions in the London summit, when the Jordan Compact was actually initiated, that was quite some progress. Great. And what about, I think maybe other two areas that we at the Charter Cities Institute, for example, draw some inspiration from as well as some I guess lessons about are one new city developments. So depending on how you want to count, there's a hundred new city developments being built around the world right now. Most of some of these are built by governments. Some of these are being built by the private sector. Some of them are public-private partnerships. Some of them are doing very successfully. Some of them are not. And so we look at those as well as special economic zones, which have a wide range from areas like Shenzhen, which is in what we describe at CCI as a proto-charter city two special economic zones that often can be single factory and just handouts to politically connected individuals. So how do you see the relation of new city developments and special economic zones with your SDZ project? Those are two different animals. I think the uh, special economic zones and free cities, free private cities, whatever, is not what we are pursuing. However, we note with interest that there is, of course, a movement and that people are doing this. What we found is that they usually come from different backgrounds. We come from a humanitarian development, civil society background, people doing free cities and mutatis, mutandis, SEZs come from basically private sector background, from maybe also a libertarian background that they're skeptical with regard to what governments can do. I'm not judging that one way or another. It's just a different animal. It's not what we're pursuing. But of course, there are similarities in the sense that, yes, we say we also need a special legal and administrative framework. I think that there is, of course, an increasing awareness worldwide that you can use special economic or rather administrative zone legislation to solve problems, problems, humanitarian problems, development problems, as we are proposing with our sustainable development zone approach, but also political problems. I mean, there are some famous, of course, examples where you try to use special zones to solve political problems, or at least to, to mitigate political problems. The special economic zone in Kaesong in Korea is one example. There have been proposals to actually have a special economic zone between Serbia and Kosovo. There have been proposals to actually make Northern Ireland a special economic zone in order to solve the political problem of the Brexit, etc., etc. Without prejudice to any of these solutions, I'm not commenting in substance now, but that shows that special zones are actually now used to solve other problems than just economic problems. And that, I think, is a very interesting development. Great, thanks. And let's go back to your time in Kosovo, because I see that as 
quite interesting, particularly with respect to how charter cities might play out. You had this basically a special administrative governance regime. And so what do you see as kind of the key lessons, how that's informed your approach, what can be taken away, and then what might want to be adjusted a little bit with SDZs? Yeah, I think it has helped to shape my thinking, not only my background as a mayor for almost a decade in a normal, quote, unquote, industrial city, but also having been UN special administrator in what was at the time a territory and now is an independent country. Well, one thing I learned is that you need to have a very defined legal framework. Our framework in Kosovo, when I was the UN interim administrator, was the UN Security Council Resolution 1244, which in certain aspects was a bit vague. So you had actually to fill it with concrete content to be able to say, this is our legal framework under which we're operating. Example, we were conducting a privatization exercise, like in many other former communist countries, privatization of the so-called socially owned enterprises, which were more than 500. Now, the resolution 1244 wasn't exactly clear to what ownership in these socially owned enterprises meant. So we had to fill it with content, had to actually go back to New York, to the UN, and uh, find additional legal ground to do what we wanted to do with regard to economic recovery. So that's just an example. That was one sort of experience I can draw from this. Another experience being the special administrator in a special administrative zone was that you need a division of power. Actually, the resolution 1244 was designed such that I had ultimate executive competencies. There were not enough appeal mechanisms, neither for the provisional government of Kosovo nor for the broader public to appeal decisions of, let's say, my UN interim administration. So what we did is we, we introduced oversight and appeal mechanisms so people could actually appeal our decision. And I could go on and on and on. But all these experiences have shaped my thinking and sort of have influenced the concept that we're pursuing today. When I think about what you're describing Kosovo, some of the challenges seem to be that it is where a lot of people were living there. And so you're pursuing with SDZs starting pilot projects on brownfield sites. And so, for example, Paul Romer emphasized greenfield sites. We at the Charter Cities Institute tend to emphasize greenfield sites. And so given that it tends to be easier to get the necessary political buy-in to do reforms on the greenfield sites, so wondering what's influencing your strategic decision to pursue brownfield sites for SDZs? I use the term brownfield to visualize what the concept aims at. The concept aims at inclusion of vulnerable groups that are in the informal sector. So at lowering the threshold for people to come from the informal and the formal sector through the special administrative framework. That is, by definition, a brownfield thing because you don't find these vulnerable groups that we want to integrate in a greenfield development. So we're something different. We're not charter cities and we're not greenfield. However, as I keep saying, of course, there should be the possibility to scale up. It would be good if there is adjacent 
greenfield development possible. But basically, this is by definition, uh, first of all, a brownfield thing. Great. And what do you see as the next, I guess, substantive steps in SDZ Alliance? I mean, I think getting a pilot project or one or two pilot projects off the ground, but what do you see as really necessary to help catalyze this space to, to accelerate its development? Well, I think without going into detail, because sort of this is still in negotiation, we have enough enthusiasm in countries to actually go into the next step and create a pilot project. What we need now is investors. And we also need to increase political advocacy so we get support from the political side. But that's not so much the problem. The problem is now that we come to business plans that actually can be picked up by investors and also donors and lenders. So it is really, it's, it's, it's kind of ready to go, but, but an injection of capital and ensuring that those plans are sufficiently adequate for the, the capital, whether it's donor requirements or whether it's investor requirements, that they feel comfortable that they're putting their money to good use. That's basically where we are at the moment. I mean, we've talked to several investors, as is clear, and they said it sounds good. We, of course, now need to see a business plan for the pilot or for, for more pilots. Great. Well, with that, let's end on a half that happy note. So thank, thanks so much for coming on, on the podcast. I wish, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.